Jodcast, venting steam throughout the cosmos. With Megan Argo, George Bennett, John Hughes, Stuart Harper, Indy LeClerc, Ian Morrison, and Chris Wallace. The Jodcast, February 2014. Hello and welcome to Jodcast. I'm joined today by Megan Argo and Indy LeClerc. Hi. Hello. In the show this time, Chris Wallace interviews Dr. Chris Messenger about gravitational waves. Ian Morrison and John Field take a look at what's happening in the February night sky. And we bring you some astronomical odds and ends. But first, before all of that, here's Stuart with this month's news. This month in the news, Hurricane Lumen. Brown dwarfs are an unusual sort of star. During their early development, they failed to accumulate enough bulk to ignite fusion in their cores, resulting in them being small, dull, and notoriously difficult to find or study. Thought to share more in common with gas giant planets like Jupiter or Saturn than the Sun, brown dwarfs occupy a middle ground in the cosmic zoo, which is what makes them such interesting objects to study. The atmospheres of gas giants are turbulent places. They are racked by constant storms and ferocious winds that result in the impressive bands of colour which wrap around Jupiter, or the form the perpetual hurricane seen by Cassini at the North Pole of Saturn. This begs the question, do brown dwarfs have extreme storms raging across their surfaces too? They are, after all, effectively just supersized gas giants. This is a question that has been wandering through the minds of astronomers since the brown dwarfs were first theorised in the late 1960s. Unfortunately, attempting to answer the question is not an easy task, since brown dwarfs are far too small to actually be resolved by a telescope, and, as mentioned, even discovering them is a challenge. This is reflected by the fact that only 2,000 brown dwarfs have ever been discovered. It was not until just a few years ago, in 2009, that the first ever tentative hint that brown dwarfs are not just static was observed. The observations focused on one particular brown dwarf, which they saw to be shifting in brightness by as much as 10% over timescales of just a few hours. The same amount of time it was expected for a brown dwarf to do a complete, full revolution. No one could be sure what was causing the shift in brightness, but it was certainly considered a possibility that it was the result of thick clouds forming and shrouding the inner core of the star, which, if true, would mean that the brown dwarf atmospheres are at least as complex as their gas giant cousins. Last month, astronomers observing the newly discovered and nearby brown dwarf binary pair Lumen 16a and b published results that seem to have confirmed finally that brown dwarfs do have stormy atmospheres. Their observations, mostly of Lumen 16b, have mapped out the surface of the star, revealing in detail the large, dark and bright regions which they have attributed to be most likely caused by large clouds. Mapping the surface of Lumen 16b required the utilisation of a slightly abstract method that would allow the observers to overcome the difficulty that brown dwarfs are too small and distant to be resolved by any direct observations by a telescope. The observations were made using the CryRes spectrometer on the VLT. By using a spectrometer to observe Lumen 16b, the astronomers experienced 
exploited the Doppler effect, which allowed them to distinguish between the light from the approaching and receding edge of the star. If the star was featureless, with no weather systems present, we do expect the two sides of Lumen 16b to be equal in brightness, but they were not. The astronomers measured differences in brightness between each side of Lumen 16b and were able to build up an image of the star's surface. This technique has been used before to study brighter stars, but this is the first application of it to a brown dwarf. The hope is that in the future further observations will be made which will reveal how the weather systems around Lumen 16b change over time. There is even the possibility that this technique could be used to reveal bands around the brown dwarf if high-resolution observations are made, further cementing the link between gas giants and brown dwarfs. The hope is that one day we will be able to understand and even forecast the weather around Lumen 16b, and that such research can be applied to our models of gas giants, aiding in our understanding of their atmospheres and formation. Thanks for that, Stuart. Now we have Chris Wallace interviewing Dr. Chris Messenger about gravitational waves. Today on the Jogcast, we have Dr. Chris Messenger from the University of Glasgow. Hi, Chris. Hi. So you came today and you talked to us about detecting gravitational waves. Would you start by explaining what a gravitational wave is? So uh, gravitational waves are a consequence of general relativity. Um, They are sort of ripples in space-time propagating through the universe at the speed of light and they they impart tidal forces on freely falling masses now that's, that's a little bit technical but they they basically squish and stretch things when they pass through or at least they try to okay and so how do you go about detecting these kind of squishes and stretches of space then so the the current state of the art technology for doing this is through interferometry so you set up um, a laser and you fire it uh, towards a beam splitter and send one arm of the laser light straight forward and one arm at 90 degrees. They go off for kilometers in length, bounce off a mirror and come straight back. They come back to the same beam splitter and then get output to a, uh, a detection port. You're detecting the light that comes out and if a gravitational wave came through, it may well have changed the length of the arms of those detectors by squishing and stretching or moving the mirrors. And then you can detect that through the combination of the laser light at the end. Okay, so what kind of, I mean, what kind of sizes are you looking for to try and detect? What, what are these shifts? Like how big are these shifts? These shifts are incredibly tiny. These are the actual physical shift that you might get um, over that length, over a four-kilometer-long interferometer, um, is around ten to the minus eighteen meters, oh, okay. which is the thousandth of the nucleus of an atom. It's it's amazing that they can they can detect these things. Although we haven't detected them, but it's amazing <laughs> that they hope to and plan to. Uh, detect these okay so what kind of sources are you looking for like what what produces these gravitational waves that you're looking for so uh, fortunately or unfortunately we have to rely on astrophysical objects to produce these so we really need very very high densities uh, and velocities Um, and unfortunately that come if they're astrophysical that comes with very very large distances hence we get very very weak signals but in needing these very very dense objects that means we need black holes neutron stars supernova things like that. Okay, and what, so what do you expect, what, what kind of events do you then expect to so be able to detect? So specifically, I mean, our, our flagship expected source that we expect to detect uh, in, the next, in the next five years is binary neutron stars. So systems containing two neutron stars that are in orbit around each other 
um, emitting gravitational waves, losing energy from the system, getting closer together, going faster around each other, going going on like that until they finally get to very high frequency and merge into a, into a black hole. Okay. So what do you expect to be able to actually gain from detection of this? Right? I mean, is it just the surprising that they, they're going to merge? Is it, is it the kind of fact that you detecting a gravitational wave or what 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 is it about the gravita- detecting a gravitational wave that is is the whole driving force of doing it okay there's i mean there's two sides to this i mean and one one side you can kind of get blinded with the immediate immediacy and the short term gains of simply detecting mm-hmm. gravitational waves it would be the first time anyone has directly detected gravitational waves and that in itself is 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 amazing would be amazing or will be amazing but that's not particularly forward-looking and scientific what we're going to learn from that but the thing is these objects we we will be seeing them in a completely different spectrum it's not part of the electromagnetic spectrum it's not you know we, we've had optical x-ray uv infrared gamma ray x-ray and so, so forth this is off that spectrum it has its own spectrum the chat we, we just don't know what that spectrum holds we, we have some ideas of what things to expect like these binary neutron stars and binary black holes but there could well be other things that we have no idea about and that's what's truly exciting about learning new things about the universe um, also once you've seen one two three a population of binary neutron stars and binary black holes it tells us a hell of a lot it tells us a lot about about the population of those objects in the universe and how they formed and how they evolve and how they relate to other uh, types of stars and, and and things like that so there's a, a lot of astrophysics in there okay so one of the main gains is to try and find out about neutron stars then what do you hope to be able to gain about neutron stars so neutron stars specifically in doing this uh, this inspiring and merging um, you're, you're destroying the neutron stars so in one scenario two neutron stars will inspiral and merge and f- very briefly form a hypermassive neutron star which is too heavy to support itself and then it will collapse into a black hole and the waveform that we get from gravitational waves will tell us very very specific information about the composition of neutron stars uh, so we'll be learning about the internal dynamics um, uh, uh, and matter inside that neutron star. Okay. You say um, you said in your talk that we haven't detected them so far, um, but you did mention a blind detection. Well, could you could you <laughs> tell the story for our listeners? Because I think that's pretty funny. Okay. So it was decided within the uh, LIGO-Virgo collaboration, the international collaboration that I'm part of for trying to detect gravitational waves, that they would have some people that we're in charge of artificially injecting a signal into our data in what was called our sixth science run in 2010, I think. And it was only, it was, it was quite specific in the sense that there was going to be one or two or possibly three signals injected or zero signals injected. There was always the possibility of none. Um, and it was drawn randomly and there was only a handful of people that knew about it. And somebody was in charge of artificially putting this signal into the data and directly into the interferometer, not in software afterwards actually hardware moving the mirrors via the mechanisms that they've developed for doing this and as i say it was only known to a few people but it was known to the entire collaboration that there was a possibility of this hence when we did our run and analysis of the six science data lo and behold there was a signal in the data and what (laughs) it's funny how people's brains work because everyone's very excited about detecting gravitational waves that's why they're doing it but they're also uh, statistically biased in the fact they know there's the possibility of there being a blind injection. So there was a kind of muted excitement about this thing. Everybody kind of knew 
it may well be a blind injection, but there was still this underlying excitement about it. And it was decided from the very beginning, uh, when, when this challenge was put forward, that they would take this to the end. Um, we would, the collaboration would go through as if it was a real signal, do all the analysis, do all the checks, write a paper. The paper was written, vetted by the whole collaboration, went back and forth through many iterations, and was made exactly ready to be submitted to a journal. And it was made, in, and it was timed perfectly for a LIGO collaboration meeting, LIGO Burger collaboration meeting, where it was, there was a vote, um, that everybody in the collaboration had to vote whether we were going to submit the paper, um, if it turned out to be a real signal. And the vote was unanimous, I think, or nearly unanimous, that we would uh, publish the paper or submit it at least. And then the envelope was opened that contained the, the truth about whether it was an injection or not. And unfortunately for us and the field, it wasn't, uh, a signal. It was a, it was a fake injection that was put in. Um, that must have been, uh, very disappointing. <laughs> I, th- it, I, I wasn't directly involved at the time. Um, but my colleagues were, and I was what I wasn't at the meeting. I was watching through, uh, Evo, uh, over the internet and everybody seemed to be having a good time. And there was champagne all around, irrespective of the fact that it was, uh, a detection or a non-detection. Um, but what it really did teach everybody was that we were ready to detect a gravitational wave. And the whole collaboration, I think, learned, learned uh, a lot in that process. So why, is there a, is there a historical reason why people are so nervous about, about saying that they've detected something, detected a gravitational wave when they haven't? I think so. I think, um, that there is a history back in, in the very early days of gravitational wave detection where bar detectors, there were claims of detection, um, which were then later proved to not be true. But it's, it's incredibly hard to, to, to validate gravitational wave detection even now and back then I imagine it was even harder and I think people are possibly us have that stigma associated we have that stigma associated with us and we just I think it's just it's very it's good it's it makes us extra safe we're not just going to throw out a detection claim uh, when there isn't one okay so you went on in your talk to say how in the future you expect many detections even though at the moment you've got none (laughs) (laughs) why are you so confident (laughs) so um again not my field field of of expertise but the the people that do this the scientists that do do simulations and and population synthesis models and taking into account the observational data of, of some of the objects we're looking for you put all that together and you end up with a very large error bar on how many of these things we expect to see or how many of these things exist. These, these binary these neutron stars. Binary and, neutron stars yeah. or binary black holes, um, compact binary coalescences mm-hmm. or, or systems that are going to end their, their life like that in, in a detect, in a detectable region around, uh, our, our detect, around Earth, right? Around our solar system, our galaxy, in fact. And they have these three or four orders of magnitude error bar on this rate. Now we are, We've been slowly creeping up towards that sensitivity, and as of initial LIGO, we were only one order of magnitude away, in the binary neutron star case, from the lower edge of that um, of that range. And with with advanced detectors, we will be right in the middle, if not near the upper edge of that detection rate range. And so, all I would say is, I mean, we we, we say we're get. I, I don't want to say we're guaranteed to detect. It's a statistical thing, but it's very much in our favour. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're reliant on on the astronomers and the and the neutron star theorists and the population synthesis people to tell us these numbers. Okay, so you're 
quietly confident that uh, something may happen in the future. And when you get those detections, what, what do you hope to do with it? What's the kind of... So there's a number of things I, I would I would like to do. I mean, one of the, the main things, the thing I talked about in my in my seminar, one of my areas of interest is is starting to do basic cosmology with gravitational wave detectors. We are seeing out to locally a cosmology at redshifts of about 0.05 for binary neutron stars, or we hope to for advanced detectors. And this enable this gives us a probe for doing uh, for measuring the Hubble constant. Uh, the very first thing we would want to do with uh, with gravitational wave observations. So let's just backpedal a little bit. Oh, okay. Firstly, what is the Hubble constant? <laughs> okay, Hubble constant uh, is basically saying how fast the universe is expanding. Certainly locally, it's telling us if we f- if if we uh, found a, a galaxy uh, a certain distance away, we would find that it's receding from us. And if we go twice as far away and find another galaxy, we would expect to see it receding at twice the velocity. It, there's a proportionality there. The further you go out, the faster things are moving away from us. Now, if you go to really high redshifts, that's not a linear relationship anymore, and it starts to be a bit more complicated. But at local distances in our universe, that relation holds. And if we start measuring the distances um, to these objects, we can make measurements of this uh, Hubble constant. Yeah. So I know in the the distance and the the redshift. Yeah. Yeah. And the redshift. Okay. And what about you mentioned combinations with electromagnetic? radiation what what would be the aim of the collaboration to combine with electromagnetic emission so one of the the hot topics at the moment and we within the collaboration because we have to get ready for this is that we want we would love to to have multi, it's basically multi messenger astronomy we want to see coincident gravitational wave detection with electromagnetic observation of the same same event and one particular example specific example of this is binary neutron stars again where we expect uh, gamma ray bursts to be caused by binary neutron star mergers. So all the population of gamma ray bursts that have been seen, that's what we expect has happened. Two neutron stars have, have inspiraled, merged, and emitted this EM burst. And what we would love to do is be able to observe in advanced LIGO a binary neutron star merger and be able to, within minutes, we want to be able to identify that as a possible detection and send out an alert to uh, other astronomers around the globe and have them quickly point their telescopes to that area of the sky and see if they can either see the GRB or if they can see other optical or other uh, electromagnetic observations uh, from that object in the sky, from that event. And that would lend a lot of statistical weight to the fact that we've detected gravitational waves, but also it's got a lot of rich physics there because, it, for one, it would then validate the fact, if we saw a GRB in coincidence with a, a gravitational wave, it would validate the fact that it definitely... GRBs come from those things, which is currently uh, sort of a theory at the moment, which is strongly believed, but it'd be great to validate it. Sounds very interesting. What is the kind of wider aim of the field? Because gravitation, like, gravitational wave astronomy seems to kind of be blossoming in various ways. What, what's the wider aim in terms of like the, the ultimate future? So, I mean, you mentioned blossoming in different ways, and I mean, one example here at Manchester is, is pulsar timing, um, which is looking for gravitational waves using a completely different tool and looking in a different frequency band. And it's like I was saying before, gravitational waves have their own frequency band. Um, LIGO, ground-based observers, are going to be looking in the kilohertz regime. Um, pulsar timing is looking in the nanohertz regime. There are space-based possible gravitational wave detec- detectors planned, like LISA, um, that's going to look in between those regimes in the millihertz. And basically, as we start filling this up, we, we've got our own spectrum, basically, 
it's a totally new astronomy. Um, we are we are going to have a, just a different window to look at the universe. And I, I think to sort of to answer your question vaguely, and it's vague because of the excitement of not knowing what we'll see, but we will see things. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, there's going to be very exciting signals and very exciting science in there. Uh, great. Thanks for coming, joining us today. Oh, no, it's been a pleasure. Thank yeah. you. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for that, Chris. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other things we can't fit in anywhere else. It's the odds and ends. Megan, what have you got for us this time? So my odd and end is M82. M82 is my favourite galaxy. I spent a considerable part of my PhD studying it. And last week, something went bang in M82. Which is kind of cool, because we've been waiting a long time for something to go bang in M82, and then we've had three in the last five years now, which is uh, quite impressive. Um, there was one in 2008. Um, there was a supernova, 2008 IZ, which exploded. That was a, a core collapse supernova, so a very, very massive star that got to the end of its life, ran out of fuel, and exploded. And while we were looking at that in the radio, we found something else that started to get bright, and at the moment we still don't know what it is. Because while supernovae get bright and then fade, this thing went bright and is still bright. It's not really faded away again yet. Several years later. So we don't know what it is. We keep looking at it, and it's still there, um, but we know what it is. And then, yeah, last week, some students at University College London were doing a telescope session with one of the, the staff down there, and they looked at M82. And when they looked at their image, they went, oh, that looks a bit different. They compared it to an old image, and they discovered a supernova. Um, and since it was discovered, there have been many, many, many other telescopes have gone and looked at it, partly because it's the closest example of a particular type of supernova that we've seen for the last 40-odd years. So pretty much everybody's been looking at it with optical telescopes, X-ray telescopes, gamma-ray telescopes, pretty much everything, and most of the radio telescopes on the planet that can see it have been pointing at it as well. MA2 is a very dusty galaxy. Uh, How easy is it for... Uh, optical telescopes to see this uh, thing just because like dust tends to absorb a lot of optical light. Yeah, that's right. M82 is a, a starburst galaxy. There's been a, a huge amount of star formation in it. It's also edge-on, which is a problem because you're looking through the disk of a galaxy, basically. You've got the, the longest line of sight through stuff that you could possibly have, which means that an awful lot of things you're just never going to see because in the optical because they're behind the dust. And that's one reason that we like looking at galaxies like this with radio telescopes, because radio telescopes can see through all of that dust. So these guys were quite lucky. This supernova appears to have been on the near side of M82, which meant that it wasn't that obscured. There's some obscuration there, there's some dust in the way that you can see when you look at the spectrum, but it's, yeah, it's fairly near to us on this side of the galaxy. And M82 itself is not really that far away in cosmic terms. It's only 3.5 megaparsecs, about 11 light years, uh, 11 million light years. It's not really that far away. And this type of supernova is a, a type 1A, which is um, caused by a thermonuclear explosion on the surface of a white dwarf. And there are different models as to how this explosion actually happens. And the fact that this one is so close means that all of the observations that we can do, we can do in a lot of detail. And we can actually hopefully distinguish between those models. That's why it's exciting. One of the other uh, important things about the supernova in MA2, too, is that we can measure the distance to uh, MA2 and the group of galaxies that MA2 lives in, which is uh, called the MA1 group because the biggest galaxy in the group is MA1. 
We can actually measure distance to this group of galaxies uh, using other means, uh, such as looking at variable stars such as Cepheids, where we think we know what the brightness is based on looking at the Cepheids in our own galaxy. Astronomers have been able to use the HST to uh, identify Cepheids in MA1, for example, and by comparing the brightnesses of the Cepheids in our own galaxy to MA1, can measure a distance there. MA1 is like a next-door neighbor to MA2, so it, if we know the distance to MA1, we just about know the distance to MA2, therefore we know the distance to supernova as well. And as long as we can, like, correct for the uh, dust extinction, we know how bright the supernova should be at this distance. And then when we start looking at these really, really far away supernovae, we know how bright they should be as well. Oh, exactly. This, this, the reason, another reason this is so exciting is because type 1a supernovae are kind of supernova that, that you study to work out how fast the universe is expanding. So you look at them in the distant universe, and you know how bright they actually are because they're all the same brightness. So if you measure how bright they appear, you can work out how far away they are. And this is what's one of the things that's led to actually the, the discovery that the universe is expanding faster and faster. It's accelerating. So if we can understand a nearby one, in huge amounts of detail, then it actually helps a lot with those cosmological estimates. That's really cool. How easy would it be for for our average listener or say a member of the public to actually spot this uh, this new supernova in M82? If you have um, a reasonable sized telescope, M82 is uh, it's a Messier object, so it's easily viewable in a an ordinary telescope. I think it peaked at about magnitude. 10 or 11, something around that. So if you've got okay. a reasonable sized telescope, yeah, an amateur should be able to pick it up. And I've seen many, many really good photographs of M82 taken over the last two weeks by amateur astronomers with reasonable kit. So it's definitely doable. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, I have something which uh, vaguely relates to research that I've done as well. This is a uh, announcement from uh, the Herschel Space Observatory. Now, the Herschel Space Observatory stopped operating in uh, the spring of last year when it ran out of coolant to keep its infrared instruments cool, and so the telescope warmed up and the instruments could no longer see anything in space. Even though the telescope stopped working, astronomers are still working on the data from the telescope because it produced a huge amount of data. And recently, a group led by Michael Coopers announced that they had detected the presence of water vapor around the dwarf planet Ceres, um, which is also uh, maybe uh, known to some people who uh, don't like the dwarf planet designation as the uh, first asteroid ever discovered. Now, this was kind of an interesting result uh, in that uh, nobody expected this. The series uh, orbits uh, the Sun uh, roughly between Mars and Jupiter in the asteroid belt. Ice has been detected around the uh, moons, around the gas giants, and has been detected from comets and um, other uh, objects which are located like much further away in the solar system. This was just a very interesting result to see uh, water vapor uh, around Ceres. And the way the water vapor was detected was kind of interesting. Now, the Herschel Space Observatory, the Herschel Space Observatory doesn't produce very sharp images, so when it looks at Ceres, it looks like a uh, smudge, basically, uh, just like uh, a lot of other things, like stars just sort of look like fuzzy blobs, and uh, very, very distant galaxies look like fuzzy blobs, although nearby galaxies look very pretty. So, they couldn't image the water vapor on the dwarf planet, instead they uh, detected the water vapor through... Uh, in infrared spectral signature, they basically saw light being absorbed by the water vapor at some infrared 
uh, wavelengths, which clearly indicate that it was there. They also found that there was a nine-hour variation in the appearance of this water vapor uh, in the spectrum from the dwarf planet, uh, which seemed to indicate that was that water vapor was being vented by a couple of specific locations on the surface of the dwarf planet. I guess I personally find this very interesting because it's uh, I worked with uh, trying to flux calibrate the Herschel Space Observatory, and Ceres was one of the objects that we looked at for calibration, and I think we decided early on that we weren't going to try with Ceres. We had problems with one of the asteroids, so and it may be possible that this water vapor affects the calibration, uh, or would affect our ability to uh, use these objects to calibrate the telescope. So Ceres has, has water vapor around it, or is venting water vapor, but does it have anything even close to an atmosphere, or is it just way too small to retain any kind of other gases? I think it's uh, close to too small and too hot as well to really uh, retain much of an atmosphere. So most of this water vapor will just vent out into space. If you look at some of the other uh, similar-sized bodies in the solar system, so uh, Titan is close to, probably close to roughly the same size, maybe larger. That has an atmosphere, but on the other hand, that's much colder. Mm-hmm. If you look at the uh, Galilean uh, satellites, the four largest moons of Jupiter, they don't have atmospheres. One of them has an icy mantle, but that's kind of different. Sure. Uh, well, actually, three of them have icy mantles, but that's different. And uh, Io, the uh, fourth one, is actually perpetually um, squeezed by Jupiter and vents out material, which then flows into the magnetosphere of Jupiter. It doesn't actually stay gravitationally bound. Interesting. My odd end has absolutely nothing to do with my research, as opposed to the first two. I'm just going to talk about a paper that Stephen Hawking uh, published online recently, which isn't peer-reviewed, but which suggests some very interesting things about black holes. Um, now, as most of us probably know, Stephen Hawking is kind of a bit of an expert in the matter, and uh, he's most people's uh, first idea of a physicist when they think about black holes. He's now suggested that there's no such thing as a black hole as we, as, as scientists, envision it today. So a black hole is essentially defined as an extremely dense point uh, in space which has an event horizon which is a, a radius around this point beyond which light can't escape because of the gravitational pull of this extremely dense um, singularity. Recently, so the past couple of years, quantum theorists have actually um, postulated that due to principles of quantum mechanics, when stuff gets sucked into a black hole, classical theory says that information gets lost forever, like it gets sucked into the black hole and it never comes back out again. Quantum mechanics doesn't like it when you say that information just disappears. So what do you mean by information? Basically, this means particles. So you have electrons, protons, other smaller particles that according to quantum mechanics, pop in and out of existence very rapidly and annihilate each other. And what happens if is that if these appear next to a black hole and they get sucked into the event horizon, then these particles are supposedly lost forever. And that sort of, so in quantum jargon, that means you take information out of the universe. So, for example, you lose charge you in lose, the universe. Or exactly. you lose electron count, for example. Or, or, like, the term would actually be lepton count because you sort of, like, count up all of the electrons and neutrinos, and that's supposed to be constant in the universe. Exactly. These um, quantum theorists posited that when when this happened, when some information got sucked into the black hole, you'd have to 
essentially um, release a large amount of energy to make up for this for this loss of information. And so the energy would get released back into the universe and that would even things out, essentially. But what that implied is that at the event horizon of the black hole, where the, where the stuff gets lost, this outburst of energy would create a sort of firewall um, around the black hole, this really energetic area. In classical mechanics or in, in general relativity, which governs the behavior of black holes, the thought experiment where you think about what would happen to an astronaut getting sucked into a black hole. And usually, according to Einstein, he would sort of wouldn't notice going past the event horizon because nothing would really change in the universe around him. But then he would slowly accelerate more and more um, towards the black hole. And eventually, once he or she was close enough, um, would just start getting ripped apart from head to toe because the gravity... Uh, the attraction at his feet would be much stronger than the one at, uh, at his head, assuming he's falling feet first, obviously. Um, and he'd be sort of pulled into little strands. And it's quite, feels itself quite an imagination for this sort of thought experiment. Spaghettification, though. It's, it's great when you word. talk to kids about this kind of thing. They love <laughs> spaghettification, especially when you demonstrate with a stuffed toy. <laughs> but what would happen, according to the quantum theorists, is that way before the spaghettification started, the, the astronaut would just run into the firewall and die a, a fiery, horrible death instead. Answers on a postcard to which one you think is worse. But this illustrates a fundamental um, discrepancy between general relativity, or Einstein's theories, which um, which say that gravity should act the same and have the same principles at, uh, at every point in the universe, um, and quantum mechanics, which clearly says that the event horizon is, is special because you will have this, this firewall of energy that surrounds the black hole. So Stephen Hawking has proposed a, a solution to this uh, discrepancy that keeps quantum mechanics and general relativity um, intact. He proposed that black holes actually don't have uh, a classical event horizon which could catch fire, as it were. Hawking talks about an apparent horizon as opposed to an event horizon, uh, which is a surface where along which light rays will, will stop in space. They, they'll be suspended. They won't be able to go any further than that. And with a normal sort of classical unchanging black hole, the event horizon and the apparent horizon are essentially the same thing. That's where the light rays stop and that's where they can't go any further. Um, the black hole grows by absorbing more matter. The event horizon will go, will surpass the apparent horizon. So light rays will be able to go past it, but will still get stopped by the event horizon. On the other hand, um, if black holes can shrink, which is something that Hawking um, posited in the 1970s through um, Hawking radiation, which is where particles appearing right at the boundary of the event horizon would release radiation into space and would release antimatter back into the black hole, effectively shrinking it. And if the black hole shrinks um, so much that it goes past the apparent horizon, uh, effectively light would be able to escape once again. So the information wouldn't be permanently lost in the black hole. So what this means is that there wouldn't be a singularity at the center of the black hole. There wouldn't be an area of, of infinite density, of infinite space. Only a place where matter would be temporarily held back by all the gravitational um, potential. And if the black hole shrank enough, then this matter could then be released back into space. And the matter itself would be very transformed. I mean, it would, wouldn't be in the, same, in the same sort of state that it was when it got in because of all the crazy gravitational pressure inside the black hole. But it would still get back out in space nonetheless. For the moment, this is an extremely untested theory. It's just a, almost a wild proposition, and the only reason that it's got a lot of traction is because it's been emitted by Stephen Hawking. However, there is still a need to resolve the paradox created by, by this discovery of the quantum firewall around black holes, and the jury's still out as to, as to how, how we reconcile um, these two now apparently very conflicting theories, which are quantum mechanics and general relativity. 
it's all really fun stuff, but it's the kind of thing that you can only really test by by theory. You can't actually go and visit a black hole and see what's actually happening because they're all well. The nearest one is in the middle of our galaxy, which is still eight kiloparsecs away. So it's yeah. difficult to test any of these things, isn't it? No, absolutely. We can't really chuck a willing sacrifice oh. down the black hole yet <laughs> to see whether they burst into flames or get turned into spaghetti. But this also is very abstract stuff. So it's like uh, when you first read. The Stephen Hawking's press release, it sort of sounds sort of crazy, but when you actually uh, sit and read through or listen to the description, it actually sounds like a rational, although very abstract, theoretical issue that needs to be addressed in physics. This is one of the subjects that um, is definitely prone to sensationalizing by the media and uh, where big headlines will be that, you know, Hawking claims that black holes don't exist and when it's not well, quite what he's saying. Uh, Stephen Hawking is also somebody who's going to be heavily sensationalized too. Um, after all, it, how many physicists have appeared on Star Trek? Well, public health warning here, we would not recommend that you actually go and try and fall into a black hole to find out what happens because, uh, of course, we can't guarantee your safety. And moving on now to talk about some Something that we're absolutely certain does exist. Here's Ian Morrison with the Northern Night Sky. The Night Sky for February 2014. Well, we have a lovely sky after sunset during this month. That great constellation of Orion the Hunter is now a little bit to the west of south. The three stars of its belt point upwards towards Taurus the Bull with those two lovely clusters, the Hyades, with the interloper Aldebaran, and the Pleiades. Up to the left of Orion, we have Gemini, the heavenly twins, and that this month contains a planet Jupiter. And going down leftwards from the three stars of the belt, we come to Sirius, the dog star, Alpha Canis Majoris. Sadly, for those of us in the north of England, the lower parts of Canis Major are not very obvious. But one thing you can try with a small telescope is just to scan downwards from Sirius, a little bit to the left, and you should come across a rather lovely little open cluster called M41. It's my favourite open cluster, actually, partly because not many people ever look at it, but there's a lovely red giant star in the centre amongst all the blue stars, the hot blue stars. It makes a lovely contrast. Moving over to the left, towards the south and then the southeast, we have Canis Minor with the bright star Procyon. And then we come through Cancer with M44, the beehive cluster, well seen with binoculars. And then rising over in the east, we have Leo the Lion, its brighter star being Regulus. It's a bit like the lions in Trafalgar Square on their haunches. Following Leo, but rising later in the night, is that region of the sky called the realm of the galaxies, between Leo and Virgo, looking towards the giant Virgo cluster of galaxies. Higher up, in the northeast, we have Ursa Majoris. Above Taurus, we have the bright yellow star Capella in Auriga. And then we have, over towards the northwest, Cassiopeia and Perseus, if you follow from Cassiopeia towards Perseus, you're running along the plain of the Milky Way. And there's a lovely object there. It's called the Double Cluster in Perseus. A little hazy glow in binoculars. Well, what about the planets? Well, it's pretty obvious that the star in the planets this month is Jupiter. It's well-placed in the evening sky. 
in the latter part of what is really an excellent apparition. It shines at magnitude minus 2.6. It actually was an opposition, i.e. due south around midnight on Jan the 5th. So at the start of the month, it's high in the sky during the evening, being at 40 degrees elevation by 7pm and rising to an elevation of over 60 degrees in the south around 10pm. It honestly doesn't get better than this. By month's end, Jupiter will be due south about 8.30pm. As I said earlier, it's lying in the constellation Gemini, moving westwards in retrograde motion towards the star Mebsuta, Epsilon Geminorum. With a small telescope, you can observe the four Galilean moons as they weave their way around it, and at times be able to pick out the great red spot, visible as an indentation in the south equatorial belt. Well, what about Saturn? It's a morning object, now visible in the pre-dawn sky, rising about 2am at the start of the month and about 12.30 at its end. It's lying in Libra, shining with a magnitude of plus 0.4, so it's not that bright. Its disk has a diameter of 17 arc seconds. The really good news is that the rings, with a diameter of 38 arc seconds, have now opened out to around 23 degrees from the line of sight, so presenting a magnificent view. With a small telescope, one should be able to spot Cassini's division that lies between the A and the B rings. If you have a telescope of perhaps 200 millimetres in aperture, the anchor gap towards the edge of ring A might be seen when the seeing is good. Sadly, for those of us in the Northern Hemisphere, Saturn is now lying in the more southerly part of the ecliptic. So even at opposition, his elevation does not get that high. And even worse, this situation will not improve for many years to come. Well, Mars is now moving on in its apparition. It lies in Virgo and rises about 11.30 at the start of the month, about one hour earlier by month's end. Its magnitude is increasing from plus 0.2 to minus 0.5 during the month as the angular size increases from 9 to 11 arc seconds. So, given good seeing, it should be possible to see markings on its salmon pink surface, which is 91% illuminated. These could be Certis Major, a V-shaped dark feature, or the polar caps, although it's actually the summer for the north polar cap, which is actually the one that's sort of facing towards us, so it may not be that prominent. Mars is moving down across Virgo and at the start of the month is just 5 degrees to the upper left of Spica, Alpha Virginis. It ends the month 6 degrees to the left of Spica as it then begins its retrograde motion back across the sky. Mercury. Mercury reached its greatest elongation east, that is, furthest in angular separation to the left of the Sun, of 18 degrees on Jan the 31st, when it lay about 10 degrees above the horizon, 45 minutes after sunset, lying near a very slender crescent moon. On the 1st of February, it will lie about 8 degrees below a slightly fuller crescent moon. The magnitude will then be minus 0.6. It will have an angular size of 7 arc seconds. And, given the low western horizon, should be visible for about two hours after sunset. Moving back towards the sun in angle, it will still remain visible for about an hour and a half 
after sunset by February the 7th. But by then its brightness will have dropped to magnitude plus one. The angular size of the 20% illuminated disk will then increase slightly to eight arc seconds. But it then rapidly disappears from view, passing in front of the sun, that's called inferior conjunction, on the 15th of February. But by month's end, it will reappear again in the pre-dawn sky. It's actually then about 20 degrees to the west of the sun. But the elevation will be very low, and with a magnitude of plus one, it will not be easy to spot. Well, finally, Venus. Well, Venus passed between the Earth and the Sun on the 11th of January. So in February, we'll be seen low above the eastern horizon before dawn. By mid-February, the planet, shining at magnitude minus 4.6, will be visible 17 degrees above the southeastern horizon at sunrise. On Valentine's Day, it will show a 25% illuminated crescent disk, some 41 arc seconds across. As February draws to a close, Venus, remaining at magnitude minus 4.6, presents a fuller disk rising to 36%, that will be about 33 arc seconds across. Well, what about the highlights of the month? Well, as I've implied, February is a superb month to view Jupiter in the evening. A small telescope will see lots of details. Surely, if you haven't got one yet, you should get one. It's looking a little bit different than some of the last few years, as the North Equatorial Belt has become quite broad. The Great Red Spot has become more prominent recently and can be easily seen in a large feature in the South Equatorial Belt. If you look at the highlights for the month in the Night Sky page on the Jodrell Bank website, I've given a diagram based upon an image I took in December 2012 showing you the main features, but also I give a list of when the Great Red Spot is visible at suitable times during the evening. I've mentioned that on February the 1st and 2nd, Mercury will be close to a thin crescent moon. A nice thing to try and do when there's a very thin crescent is to look for Earthshine, the dark side of the moon illuminated by light reflected by clouds on Earth. On February the 10th, after sunset, Jupiter will be seen close to a waxing moon. It's about seven degrees away. On February the 19th, before dawn, Mars will be close about 5.5 degrees above Spica in Virgo, and 10 degrees to the upper right of a waning moon. Perhaps a nice thing to look for is on the 22nd of February, and plus or minus a few days in fact, try and spot the second largest of the asteroids, its Pallas, or Minor Planet 2. This month it's moving northwards through Hydra, closing in on the second magnitude star Alphard, a-L-P-H-A-R-D. On the 22nd of the month, it reaches opposition, and so will be due south around midnight, shining at magnitude plus seven, sadly not visible with the unaided eye, but easily visible in a pair of binoculars. And that night, it'll be just four degrees away from Alphide. So if you find that, you can see Pallas in the same field of view of a pair of binoculars. 
Pallas is the second largest minor planet after Ceres in the main asteroid belt and is about 550 kilometers across. On the 22nd, it will be just over twice as far from the Sun as the Earth. 2.1 astronomical units. And perhaps I could point out, should the diameter of an object be greater than about 800 kilometers, then gravity will make it spherical. And nowadays, it would then be classed as a dwarf planet. And that is, in fact, the case with Ceres. Finally, on February the 26th, before dawn, Venus is very close to a thin crescent moon. Looking southeast before dawn on that morning, you should spot Venus just half a degree above the disk of a slender, waning crescent moon. And that should make a very good astrophotography target. Anyway, enjoy the months observing the sky. Thanks for that, Ian. And for our listeners on the other side of the equator, here's John Field with the Southern Night Sky. Kia ora, and welcome to the February podcast from Carter Observatory. Our evening sky is dominated by the planet Jupiter, along with the constellations of Orion, Canis Major, and Taurus in our northern sky. Appearing as a bright white star, Jupiter continues to move in front of the distant stars that form the zodiac constellation of Gemini the Twins. Gemini is one of the constellations through which the ecliptic passes. Over the year, the Sun moves in front of these constellations as the Earth completes its annual orbit around it. To the left of Jupiter and Gemini is an upside-down view of stars that forms ahead of another zodiac constellation, Taurus the Bull. The brightest star in the V is Aldebaran, which has a distinct orange hue. This star is about 65 light-years away and is similar in mass to Sirius, but has evolved to become a giant star. As the star expanded, its surface area also increased, and its surface temperature dropped, giving the star an orangey-red hue. Sirius and our Sun will eventually do this, but not for a very long time. The faintest stars of the V belong to a more distant cluster called the Hyades. These are younger and brighter stars in Aldebaran. By extending the V down towards the northern horizon, you will find two stars marking the horn tips. The Pleiades mark the bull's back and can be found to the west of his head. Visible as a compact cluster of at least six stars, they make a fine sight in binoculars. In Greek mythology, Taurus is seen as the embodiment of the great god Zeus. Gemini and Cancer are two of the other zodiac constellations in our summer sky. The bright stars Castor and Pollux mark the heads of the twins and they can be found in the north after sunset below Jupiter. Gemini lies on the eastern edge of the Milky Way and this region contains a number of faint and distant stars. Within one degree of Castor there are five faint galaxies that can be found using a large telescope. The December radiant of the Gemini meteor shower is also near to this star. Pollux, the brighter of the two stars, is about 35 light years away from us. Nearby to Eta Geminorum, marking one of the feet of Gemini, is M35, an open star cluster. Under good conditions, it can be viewed with the unaided eye as a hazy star. Binoculars or a wide-field telescope are the best way to view this lovely cluster. Cancer the Crab is a fainter constellation of five stars, and near to the centre is a naked-eye cluster of stars called the Praesepi, or the Beehive. This large and bright star cluster appears as a nebula to the unaided eye, and binoculars reveal individual stars. Galileo viewed this cluster with his telescope in 1610, being the first human to see it as a star cluster. Orion the Hunter, our summer constellation, is due north after sunset. This bright grouping of stars dominates our summer evening sky, and to us southern hemisphere observers hangs upside down. Orion's brightest stars, Rigel, Betelgeuse and Bellatrix, along with the three stars of his mount, form an easily seen pattern in our evening sky. 
Well, placer viewing is the Orion nebula, which can be found in the middle of Orion's sword. To the unaided eye, this nebula appears as a fuzzy star. If you have binoculars or a small telescope, they will reveal a bat-shaped cloud. A 100mm or greater telescope will reveal a number of stars in and around the nebula, including a tight group of four stars called the trapezium. Above the belt of Rigel, the brightest star in Orion, although it is listed as Beta, the second brightest star. This star is actually a triple star system about 860 light years away, and a total luminosity of the group is estimated to be 130,000 times that of our Sun. To the east are Orion's two hunting companions, Canis Major, the large, and below, Canis Minor, the smaller dog. The brightest star in our night sky is Sirius, marks the collar of Canis Major. For us, the dog is lying on his back with his feet up in the air. Sirius is 8.7 light years away, and about 26 times brighter than our sun. Below Canis Major is Procyon, the eighth brightest star in the night sky. Just over a third of the way between Sirius and Procyon is a cluster of stars called M50, visible in binoculars. About halfway along the life of Procyon to Betelgeuse, binoculars will reveal a rectangular cluster of stars that is embedded in the faint nebula, called the Rosette. Almost overhead in the early evening sky is the second brightest star, Canopus. From midnight, Mars, followed by Saturn, can be found rising in the east. Mars is in Virgo, and Saturn is in the constellation of Libra. Our autumn and winter months will see Mars and Saturn in our evening sky and better placed for viewing. Finally, Venus will reappear in our morning sky, rising just before the sun. It will climb higher as the month progresses, and at month end it will be joined by Mercury. We hope you have clear skies during the summer nights and take the opportunity to view the lights of our southern skies. Thank you for that, John. And now it's time for feedback. I'm sorry to report that this time we haven't got any post, and the email inbox is sitting a bit bare. Thanks to all the new people who have liked our page on Facebook. Uh, we've also had a few things on Twitter um, since the last show. We've had a couple of uh, ex-Jodcasters, or Jodcasters Emeritus, as we like to call them, who've got in touch recently, one of them being Jen Gupta, who pointed out that uh, a show had already been called Llama, so we've now uh, amended that on the January Extra show, so thanks for that, Jen. And Liz Guzman also tweeted at us to say, so happy to be back in the Jogcast, an interview about my job at Alma. And of course, you can check out Liz's interview on the last Jogcast by going to jogcast.net slash archive. And as usual, thanks to all our new likers on Facebook and for all the retweets and follow Fridays on Twitter. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can also send us real posts. The address is on the website. Thanks to Dr. Chris Messenger for the interview. The editors were Sally Cooper, Indy LeClerc, and Mark Perver. The producer was Sally Cooper. Until next time, Jodon! Jodon.